you're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And I'm Stephanie. In this episode, we are discussing episodes one and two of Orphan Black, the next chapter, which are entitled Our Needs to Shape Us, part one and part two. We will discuss everything that happened in those two episodes, but there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. Because we don't really remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so pandemic disclaimer, we are we are recording this during June 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic is still a thing. We're still both kind of a mess. So if you're listening to this in the somewhat distant future, please forgive us for not being as good at podcasting as we used to be. <laughs> I mean, also, please forgive us if you're listening to this approximately the time we're releasing them, but but you get it. You guys get it. <laughs> so, Chris. Yes, Stephanie. <laughs> there's more Orphan Black stuff that involves Tatiana Maslany playing the clones. It makes me very happy to be united with Clone Club. Me too. It's It's sort of like a nice metaphorical hug a little bit. It's a it's both a metaphorical and like a vocal hug. I do feel like just embraced by Tatiana's voice whenever I I listen to the episodes. It is comforting. And I got to say when I when I sat down to listen to this again and I remember this happened when I listened to the next chapter the first time, as soon as I heard that like two fingers theme start playing in the background, I just got a huge grin on my face. I felt so excited. I, I believe I also had that reaction more so the first time, I think, than, than re-listening. The thing that hit me, and I think it also hit me the first time, but this time, maybe, maybe more so because of the extra time it's been since the series aired. The moment that hit me is when Tatiana Maslany starts talking as Sarah. I don't know what it is. I think it's just like that is so quintessentially orphan black to me. That's that's the thing that got me. Well, Sarah was really our home base character. She's the one who really helped us as the audience navigate all of the craziness that was Orphan Black. And so I, I totally get that. Just hearing that character evoked again would be kind of emotional. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it, it's sort of an oddly long time into the episode before we hear her. Yeah, absolutely. So I was I must say I was very intrigued and excited about this idea of translating Orphan Black into an audiobook because we'd had the comics before and I I enjoyed those but you did at least I did definitely missed that element that Tatiana brought to each of the characters as you are confronted with, you know, depictions of the characters rather than like her presence. Mm -hmm. And so while we don't get, you know, Kasima's dreads and the having two of her in the same frame, you know, there's not that same element to an audiobook. I just so love having her back in those roles again. Yeah, me too. You're right. The the comic books, while I enjoyed them, they do feel removed from the series in a way that this doesn't. And something that I didn't know that I was anticipating before I started listening to the audiobook, but I have really enjoyed from the audiobook format, is how we get to experience more of the character's thought processes because of, you know, now we have a narration rather than just the being able to see people's actions. We can also get their internal spaces very clearly. Mm -hmm. 
because it's it's a thing that you could kind of discern from the TV show because you know you could see people's faces, <laughs> but now we can't see people's faces, so we have to hear what they're thinking rather than trying to interpret facial expressions. And that is the difference between audiobooks <laughs> or books at all and television. <laughs> People's faces. Thanks for thanks for making that clear, Chris. You got it. <laughs> I also really liked that this book does a time jump and kind of I guess it, it kind of like catches up Clone Club to the present since the season the series itself existed in a, a very like compacted time frame, at least for the first two two or so seasons. So it's it's nice that we've had this kind of like time pass and we get to see kind of the bonds that have formed between different characters over the years and and see kind of what has changed for people, but also what hasn't very noticeably changed. And I, I find that to be really an interesting piece of jumping back into this world. This is true. I hadn't thought about it too much because I was still thinking of the, thinking of this as slightly in the future, which I think maybe it technically might still be a little bit. Yeah, but I think so. Yeah, it's like slightly in the future, but more current ish <laughs> right right that that's the thing it's like i had forgotten about the condensed nature of time of course i think the show kind of forgot once or twice also so yeah <laughs> you know fair <laughs> enough but but no that is a good point that um with the show taking place over fewer years than it aired this is perhaps closer to now than it seems like I wanted to talk a little bit about the title references for this season of the or of the next chapter. I've, I'm getting a little confused on terminology here since we've jumped into an audiobook format. It's true. And the fact that they titled it the next chapter makes it additionally awkward. Yeah. <laughs> there was a whole back and forth of like, do we call these episodes or do we call them chapters? <laughs> we went with episodes because I think that's what they call them in the episodes. But so this season, I guess, of the next chapter. The title references, we, we are back into meaningful tiny title references, just like they did in the TV series. So all of these titles, they come from two books by Octavia E. Butler, from The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents. Octavia E. Butler, in case you are not aware, she is an American, or she was an American writer, she passed away in the early 2000s, who is, was an African American woman, and just brilliant, just brilliant writer. And she's written some of my personal favorite books, including Parable of the Sower, which is one of the books that they pulled titles from for this series. And they're very, very good, but also very difficult to visit uh, in this current time that we're living in. <laughs> so Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, they originally released in the 1990s, in 1993, and then in 1998. And I'm quoting this from Wikipedia just because I thought this was a nice, succinct summary of the series. The books depict the struggle of the Earth Seed religious community to survive the socioeconomic and political collapse of 21st century America due to poor environmental stewardship, corporate greed, and the growing gap between the wealthy and the poor. The books propose alternate philosophical views and religious interventions as solutions to such dilemmas. 
So the title reference for these two particular chapters, the the larger quote from which it is, has been pulled is, we'll have to be very careful how we allow our needs to shape us. And this particular quote's from Parable of the Sower. And I felt like that, when I read the quote in context, it felt like a very interesting way to begin this new series of Orphan Black, where I think it can both allude to something ominous potentially about to happen to our little community of Clone Club, but it also kind of alludes to maybe how they've changed over this period of time when we haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I I recently listened to the audiobooks for both Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. I've I've listened to both over the past year. Uh, If you're a fan of Orphan Black and speculative fiction, they are extremely good. Uh, I highly encourage you to check them out if you haven't yet. Chris, you had mentioned that it took a while for us to kind of be reunited with Sarah. And partly that has to do with the fact that we are taken into the series with this new character of Vivi Valdez, who, and like, I have to be, I wasn't like bored, but I was impatient to kind of like get through Vivi's rather long kind of like first section of the episode. So he get to my girls, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, where are my clones? I want my clones. I have like more appreciation, I think, of the Vivi Valdez section when I'm listening to it the second time. But I thought that was kind of a maybe not daring, but kind of an interesting move of starting us sort of outside of Clone Club and then using Vivi to lead us back into Clone Club. Agreed. It is, on first listen, sort of a shock. <laughs> Just because who who even is this person? This is not what I came here for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's sort of the, well, one of the challenges of doing what is essentially a sequel, right? I mean, people come with expectations. And I think especially not even knowing that she is a clone. <laughs> I mean, you can you can suspect all you want at first, but like, we just we don't know. We don't know. We don't know this person. <laughs> and she works for the CAA. Should we trust her? I don't know. I mean, if the original series taught us anything, like the the government people, super shady. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Though I I did suspect pretty much from the beginning that she would turn out to be a clone. Oh, sure. <laughs> but I, I did like that there was an additional twist of, aha, but she's not necessarily from the same group of clones that we know, even though she looks like them. So it was nice that they did add another layer onto the clone reveal, even though you could probably guess pretty quickly, like, oh, she's going to be a clone. I do have... I guess, mixed feelings about this new set of clones. Sure. I mean, just the fact that they decided to go there. <laughs> it's it's not an uninteresting choice, but it just seems, I don't know, surprising, I guess, given the original series and like, bam, new clones. <laughs> In retrospect, though, I do realize how starting with Vivi is kind of similar to how the original series starts out, right? Because we have Sarah, who kind of just stumbles upon like, oh my gosh, this woman looks like me. And, you know, Beth and Allison and Kasima, like they'd already kind of become aware of each other and had more information than Sarah did. And so Sarah's like trying to get at that information. And so that's now how Vivi is positioned in this new story where, you know, she's outside of Clone Club looking in and and 
is naive herself to her origin. And she's also, you know, kind of similar to Sarah, somebody who can, is good at impersonating other people. So she's, she's very much functioning in a, in a Sarah Manning type of way in, in this new chapter of Orphan Black. They also use her position in the CIA as an interesting way to introduce the new storyline. Because, of course, she's spying on people who are relevant to the the entire plot of the next chapter. And as a undercover operative for the CIA, CIA we learn that Vivi is kind of doing an unofficial inquiry into GRIT, this organization who seems to work with genetics. And we're talking about like biological weapons that were targeted at a small group of CIA family of CIA agents, I guess, getting sick. And, you know, by the end of the episode, I think it we're supposed to assume that these people who got sick likely refers to the, the ill unknown Lita clone who Charlotte finds on the internet. Or at the very least that that's somehow related to the illness that's previously mentioned. Right. And that discovery also leads us to this realization that there's perhaps a, a younger group of Lita clones and her, like Vivi's memories of seeing these like other Vivis, it did make me kind of wonder what this younger group of Lita clones sort of like what their origins could be. Cause it kind of sounds like, Oh, maybe they were raised kind of like a cohort, like Castor, maybe at least, when they were young, or did you have any thoughts about what her other Vivi's memories might suggest? Well, the thing that that reminded me of is the scene from the comics where we see the group of European clones, Mm -hmm. because they seem to know each other, at least some of them knew each other as children, right? but weren't raised, or at least it seemed to me, weren't raised quite as closely as the caster clones were. So that's, that's where my mind went. I also thought of that, too, but then it had been a minute since I read the comics, then I was like, I can't remember how they knew each other. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember details either. Again, it has been so long since, you know, all of the previous Orphan Black stuff. Stuff's a little foggy. Also, you know, pandemic, but anyway. (laughs) But it did seem that Vivi and perhaps her cohort of clones had a little more awareness of each other compared to the older Lita clones who, at least on like the North American side, didn't really have much contact with each other before they were adults. Mm-hmm. And were very deliberately kept separate. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was a little curious about the dynamic that she had with Arun, who seems to be her colleague, because it there was projections of like, she kind of has maybe a little bit of a crush on him. And it made me wonder like, oh, did they maybe have like a thing in the past? And now she's trying to play it cool? Or maybe she's just never acted upon it? I don't know. Do do we trust a rune? That's always the question when it comes to Orphan Black. This is fair. <laughs> it's always, okay, if they're if they're not a clone, how much do we trust them? If they are a clone, how much do we trust them? <laughs> Did you wonder if they had monitors and if he might be her monitor? That was my first thing that I thought of. You know what? Thinking about it, I'm pretty sure the first time I listened to it, I did think that, yes. Uh, And again, I have no memory of where this actually goes, so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know this time. 
because I'm I'm ignorant of this if this is an actual like terminology used in the CIA, but you know you hear about handlers where you have undercover operatives who then have a contact who's more a traditional within the agency type of role, and so if if that is their relationship or Arun's like her handler, that would be a perfect mm-hmm. position for a monitor, right? Because she's required to report back to him. This is true. All this talk of handlers is in the CIA is giving me. Uh, alias flashbacks. Ooh. <laughs> but it was it was kind of nostalgic that we got a clone swap here in this first ish episode. I think it actually technically happens in episode two, but it's part one and part two. So we're treating them like they're one big episode where we get Vivi pretending to be Kasima. I have to say like an audiobook version of a clone swap isn't quite as like satisfying as a visual version of a clone swap, but I did like that they still kind of nodded to the clone swaps on the series. Lots of hats involved. <laughs> People trying to to fake accents a little bit. <laughs> And it was, because going back to kind of being able to hear characters' inner thoughts, like, it was entertaining to kind of hear Vivi's impressions of Cosima and, like, the the conclusions that she was coming to of Cosima, just kind of listening to her voice and how she was speaking and things like that. I did enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Like, having more information than Vivi did and kind of, like, hearing what she thought of Cosima. Right. And she got pretty close. Like, good job, Vivi. (laughs) While Vivi was pretending to be Cosima, there was this piece in the book that I thought was very, very Orphan Black. It was both funny and also alludes to one of the big themes of the series. And it said, she couldn't get caught, and especially not in f***ing Canada. I don't, I don't know why that part made me laugh as much as it did, but it totally made me cackle. Even if she didn't get burned, she'd die of shame. And if she did get burned, she'd lose her whole life, her identity. So connecting back to the big overarching theme or one of the big overarching themes of Orphan Black with this idea of identity and what it means to be a person, especially when you know there are other people out there who are made exactly like you are. But the clone swap was certainly like the one of the more climactic parts of the episodes where, you know, we get more of a hint about what Grit might actually be up to. And Sturgis somehow seemed to know about the Lita clones. I don't think he used the word clone, but he certainly seemed to understand that there was a reason why this person might look exactly like Kasima Niehaus. That was the thing. In Sturgis's conversations with Kasima, as I was listening to it, I was trying to figure out how much he actually knew. Because mm-hmm. it's pretty unclear like you know he knows something but you're also like does he know how much he knows because he mentioned something about oh wait i should have made more of a realistic conclusion because of the epigenetic marker so it was kind of like did he have a suspicion just based on looking at like genomic data or i was in the same boat i'm like how much does he really know like clearly he knows more than just an average person who would walk by vivi on the street but how much does he actually know about like the complicated web of experiments that surrounds these women? Just to be clear, by these women, I mean Vivi and Kasima. I wanted to clarify because when Delphine was talking about how many clones that she and Kasima had inoculated, she kept saying something like 279 women. And in my head, I kept adding, and Tony. So I just wanted to make clear, I have not forgotten that Tony is also a leader clone. 
I've forgotten many things, but I have not forgotten that. Right, because there's this whole thing of him talking to Cosima and Cosima thinking that he knows what it is that, you know, that she's a clone. But, like, from what he actually says, you don't actually know if he knows that she's a clone. Like, you get the impression that he definitely knows that Cosima was involved in secretive stuff at Dyad, but, like, does he know what that is? Right, yeah. <laughs> or how she's involved? kind of didn't seem like he totally, totally knew. But when Vivi confronts him, we do get a little more information about this project that she's kind of spying on him about. It's called the TAG project. And he he makes some vague references to, oh, it was supposed to be about healing. But then he realized it, it seems to be actually a biological weapon. So when he's talking about these things, First of all, I think about like, oh, healing. Is this more stuff related to the Lin 28A gene mutation that we kind of learned about in season five that Kira has? Or, and then when he talks about biological weapon, I'm like, oh no, are we talking more about like caster and, and that type of stuff? But I have no solid footing at this point, like what the tag project might be up to. So, Chris, you and I, we, we both work in a lab, right? We work in a pathology laboratory. And this is true. You you work upstairs in, like, an office area. I do. You can, like, have drinks at your desk and nibble a snack at your desk, all that good stuff. And I work down in the lab, and since we handle, like, samples and stuff, like, I can't drink water at my desk, I can't eat food at my desk, since we have stuff in the lab that if I ingested it could harm me. I'm not allowed to, like, eat or drink or I'm not supposed to, like, take out my contacts. You can't put on makeup or chapstick or any of that stuff. So, like, in our lab, there's these very distinct divisions between lab space and office space. So, like, as I was listening to this little encounter that Vivi has in Sergis's office, I found it very weird that he had, like, a tiny lab in the corner of his office. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> is that allowed? Like, <laughs> does he, maybe he just doesn't eat and drink at his desk, but then it's like, why would you choose that? Like, why would you volunteer to have a tiny lab in your, in your office? So that would mean like you couldn't drink water at your desk. Cause man, I tell you what, Chris, I really miss being able to drink water at my desk. Like that's a big bummer <laughs> that I can't drink water. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I do feel bad often as I'm like walking through lab spaces. I'm like, you, you poor people. <laughs> You poor dehydrated people. <laughs> I am. I'm perpetually dehydrated, pretty much. <laughs> but it is like it's very TV, though, right? To have yeah, to have your lab in your office. <laughs> I thought about that too. Is like I was rewatching season two of Orphan Black, and we see Leaky's office, and he's got his little science experiment set up in there, and he keeps like stuff in his fridge, like probably some reagents or genetic material. I don't know what he's got going on in there. And I'm just thinking, like, does that mean he's not supposed to drink coffee in his office? <laughs> Would he get in trouble? I don't know if there's any Canadians listening who know about these types of rules in Canadian laboratories, but if there's some sort of different exception, please let me know. <laughs> but I will say Vivi was lucky in some ways that he had a, a safety shower in his office, because that was the other thing that made me like go back and listen. It's like, why would he have a safety shower in his office if that was an office area? But <laughs> <laughs> she does clearly mention he has a little like laboratory set up over there. 
But I was thinking if he had a safety shower, he he also probably should have had an eye wash station, which would have been helpful for her. So she didn't have to get like completely wet. I just how how big is this office right? is what I want to know. And then again, like he's got a safety shower in there, Chris. Like did his desk just get soaked when she turned it on? <laughs> this just doesn't seem practical to me. Again, if this maybe the office is really huge, maybe it's. I don't know. Yeah. That's the only explanation I can come up with. Maybe this is an extraordinarily large office space. Again, akin to TV. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's the only logical explanation. Because if you have a safety shower in your office, you got to have a drain. Like your your floor has got to be sloped so that the water will pull, 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 pull toward the drain. (laughs) Because you got to test those suckers pretty frequently, too. Like it's... Serious business. You gotta flush them once a month. That's one of my jobs at the lab. They smell bad because they are stagnant. They build up some yucky water in the pipes. Anyhow, it just doesn't seem like a great idea. So speaking of crazy science. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That was an excellent segue, Chris. Thank you. You're you're welcome. (laughs) I was recalling today that we were robbed of, like, the full Crazy Science series with Cosima and Delphine. They put out that one comic, and then they never followed up. Oh, that's right. That's right. It got canceled before they even were able to release the full thing. Yeah, because they didn't have good sales of the first one. But I bet if they'd put it out as a graphic novel, it would have done pretty well. That's just my suspicion. It's true. So we have more recently seen Cosima and Delphine in the comic books going around vaccinating clones post season five. So it made me happy that we like picked up with them here and they still make me sigh, Chris. They still make me very happy, even though there's tension there. I know it. I don't want to talk about it, but I know it. (laughs) But I mean, it's married tension. Yes. They still make me happy. (sighs) I love them. Because they are. They're, They're married. They have a house that they're renovating. It's all very domestic and sweet. Delphine is cooking probably like beef bourguignon and and giving Cosima the good wine. Like that sounded dirty. That's not how I meant for that. <laughs> My brain didn't even go there. <laughs> she was giving Cosima the good wine, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm now imagining you like exaggeratedly winking. How did you know? <laughs> but I really liked how we saw. I feel like both sides of their relationship here, right? Because we have, we see them make these little compromises with each other where Kasima is late because she's always kind of late and she's always kind of sorry, you know, and forgets their anniversary. But Delphine's just kind of like, it's fine, takes it in stride. And then, you know, Delphine, she kind of burns the cake and Kasima's like, oh, the food's really good, even though I think it could use a little more garlic. You know, these like small little married compromises. But we still see that that like push and pull of their different perspectives on things are still like very much there in their relationship. They they are very sweet with each other though. And it's their what did they say, seventh anniversary? Was it was it either sixth or seventh. I think there was something about how they'd been married six years and then it was revealed that it was their anniversary, and I think it, they said seventh anniversary. Anyway, the point being, it is it is all very, as I said already, uh sweet and domestic. And they go and they have some wine in their what was the what was the room that they went to was it their like enclosed patio or something i don't know there was a hammock involved 
And I feared there was a hammock involved. I feared for Kasima's safety when Delphine jumped up to go check the cake. I was like, did Kasima <laughs> just get dumped on the floor? <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> but she seemed okay. <laughs> I tell you what, though, if that was me leaping up from a hammock, first of all, I could not leap up from a hammock. I would. I can't get out of hammocks. Can you? I I, I can't. No. I, somebody has to like tip me out. Like <laughs> hammocks are both great and terrible. Once you get in them, they're great. They're lovely. They're relaxing. I cannot, for the life of me, get out of a hammock by myself. I have to like scoot to the edge. And then kind of fall onto the ground. <laughs> it is. It's like a. It's like a controlled fall. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, but they're they're also hard to get into. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely are. It's like a controlled throw yourself into them, and then a controlled fall out of them. Uh, the controlled part is like hopeful. <laughs> Hopefully, it's controlled. <laughs> this is a strange tangent about hammocks. <laughs> we have strong feelings about hammocks and safety showers. That's where. That's what the people come here to hear about. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's true. If you wanted to hear about the actual story, you'd just go listen to the story. None of this nonsense. <laughs> Hammocks, though, are way easier to navigate in an audiobook, is the point that I'm making. And <laughs> Ah, yes. This is true. This is true. In fiction, we're all, we're all great at getting in and out of hammocks. Makes graceful. But, okay, so getting back to Kasima and Delphine. So they are very sweet with each other, but we do, you know, see this tension in their relationship around some things. You know, we, they mm-hmm. have that very intense argument about going public about the clone disease and sort of the consequences of the choices they made around that. And I mean, it wouldn't be them if they didn't have these debates, I feel like, you know? Absolutely. But it also feels like another big tension in their relationship right now is Kasima just – she feels very stagnant. You know, she took longer to finish her dissertation and get her degree. And now that she's got her degree, she's not really able to put the impressive stuff on her CV that could get her the good jobs. But Delphine's able to be over here and be tenured and do these cool things like be on committees about security threats and things like that. And so – that definitely seems to be a big point of contention for them right now. And makes complete sense, given the way the TV series played out, is the part that I like, where it's kind of like, oh, thinking back about it, it's like, yeah, I guess that would all have to be true, right? Because Delphine did go the big corporate route and wearing the fancy clothes and being all publicly involved with Dyad. It's like, oh, no, this makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely felt like a very natural follow-up from the series, which I did really appreciate. And another thing that felt like kind of an interesting little follow-up from the series was uh, this, uh, maybe conflict is too much of a word for it in this particular episode, but, you know, this question that they're having about having a baby. And I watched a clip from, like, the last episode of Orphan Black on YouTube the other day, and I was reminded that when Kasima and Delphine showed up at the party at Allison's house, you know, Felix hands Kasima one of Helena's babies, and Kasima promptly just kind of, like, holds it away from her and gives it to Delphine, and it's just like, I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> and it, so it kind of feels almost perfect that now we're seeing them kind of, like, talk through, like, the tension that was present in that last little, one of the last little moments we saw from them on the series. Mm-hmm. 
But when it comes to having a baby, it seems, again, like we have Delphine being a bit more comfortable with using technology to manipulate somebody's genome compared to Cosima. And I thought it was interesting there's a reference to Cosima Lake is thinking about her her pot varieties, I forget the word, strains that they've grown. She talks about, you know, manipulating their genes. So, you know, it doesn't seem necessarily that genetic modification makes her nervous, but maybe it's just the fact that they will be manipulating a human being's genomes and won't be sure of the outcome, you know, and she really saw the effects of manipulating with a genome and not being able to anticipate how it could negatively impact the results of that manipulation. Yeah. And I think just sort of, I don't know, the knowledge of Kira's existence, perhaps, also playing in here where, you know, I think they referenced the scene in this chapter uh, from the first season of the TV show where they decode that bit of genetic code and it's talking about how, you know, this life form is property of, etc. Right. So the part that's decoded, which, you know, obviously is about the clones, but also has implications about any of their children, you can tell and it makes sense that that would be part of Cosima's concern specifically. Because, of course, this is something that she's been living with for the past approximately decade and uh, probably has seen Sarah worry even more about with Kira. So it's not that I don't think Delphine isn't concerned about it, but I feel like Cosima probably feels the weight of it more than Delphine does. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I agree. I think that's a great point. Though I do also wonder if... Kasima definitely expresses reservations about having a baby where they try to use both of their genetic material to make a baby, having reservations about that. But I also wonder if maybe there's some, there's a possibility that she's using discomfort about that to not talk about the fact that maybe she doesn't want to have a kid at all. I don't know. Mm-hmm. When Cosima and Delphine are talking about having a baby, Delphine mentions that the techniques they could use to create an embryo from both of their DNA are common techniques, and that comment made me curious about the research into creating embryos from two eggs or two sperm. So I I did a little research. I'm going to attempt to explain some science. Here we go. I'm going to do my best. I found an article published by Discover Magazine in January 2020 discussing the topic, which was very accessible and interesting. The article is called The Slow March Toward the First Same-Sex Couple to Have a Baby, which isn't really the most accurate title, but either way. The article discusses the major challenge to creating an embryo from two eggs or two sperm, as well as two techniques being researched as viable options to overcome that challenge. The major obstacle to producing a viable embryo from two eggs or two sperm is a phenomenon called genomic imprinting, which has to do with how our genes are expressed. We get half of our genes from one parent and half of our genes from the other parent, 
And for a small number of our genes, we only express one of our parents' genes because the corresponding gene from the other parent is programmed to be turned off. That is genomic imprinting, which tells those genes to be turned off. So what happens when an embryo is created from two eggs or two sperm is that the same gene is programmed to be turned off in both sets of genes. And so the resulting embryo or offspring won't be able to make those genes products, which can cause very serious side effects. Often those embryos can't come to term, they are miscarried. Or there could be, in if the offspring does come to term, there can be developmental delays or cancer. The first solution the article talks about that has been used to overcome the genomic imprinting is CRISPR, which is a gene editing technique. And researchers have used CRISPR to edit out imprinted gene regions from embryonic stem cells from the eggs of two mice. And then those edited stem cells were injected into a donor egg and carried to term by a surrogate mouse. This technique has actually produced healthy mice offspring from two female mice who have lived to adulthood and reproduced, but the technique has been less successful for offspring from two male mice. The other technique that could be promising for couples like Cosima and Delphine is in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG, which I believe we've talked about before on the podcast way back in our clone science episode, which was episode 17. This technique can take other cells from a person's body and turn them into eggs or sperm. So for example, they could take Cosima's skin cells, which are differentiated cells, meaning those cells can only be skin cells, but they can reprogram the skin cells to be stem cells, and stem cells are undifferentiated cells, and they can become any kind of cell, including sperm. And then those sperm that are made from Cosima's skin cells could be used to fertilize Delphine's eggs, and a resulting embryo would then have genetic contributions from both of them. So, speaking of clone offspring... You are just nailing it with the segues today. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's gotten into me today, but you know, I am good for something. <laughs> but Charlotte and Kira, I actually got really excited when I heard a little bit from Charlotte and Kira in this this episode because, you know, they were kids in the series. We didn't we saw them obviously, but they weren't quite fully formed characters in their own right. And I thought this was. Setting them up to be more independent characters, and that made me really excited. Yeah, me too. Um, Especially just because, you know, we've seen both characters, but like, I think Kira got really more development than Charlotte did. For sure. So it was really nice to see Charlotte still like actively involved with our little clone family. And hearing that, you know, Art's basically her dad now, which is great. Makes me happy that Art's still part of the family. Me too. And I also, I liked that they, they brought up Charlotte's brace, her exoskeleton, as she likes to call it. Mm-hmm. And there was a little reference to sort of her being involved in disability rights groups and the glasses versus contacts debate. You know, people who is sort of the, the tension between people who are born with the disabilities versus people who like acquire disabilities due to an accident or something like that later in life. 
I, I'm hoping we hear more about that because that was something that I found interesting that they kind of touched upon in the series, but we didn't explore super fully. So I'm, I'm hoping maybe we might get a little bit more of that from Charlotte in the next chapter. Which, again, seems more likely now that Charlotte seems like one of the main characters of this series. And it's also nice to see Kira as, what are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be like 18 or so, right? It sounded like Charlotte was about 18, and Kira was maybe a little bit younger than that. I think 17, maybe? That I think she, I think right. she says she's 17 and, at some point. But they're, they're young adults. And uh, it's so entertaining to me that, of course, Kira at 17 is sort of like probably the kind of child that uh, Sarah probably sort of was. I mean, less so. <laughs> I feel like Kira's definitely less of a nightmare than Sarah probably would have been. <laughs> yes, for sure. But of course, that same spirit is is there. And of course, also speaking of Sarah, it's interesting to me that Sarah has grown into like the really overprotective, not that she wasn't overprotective before, because she definitely was, but... I think because that is the primary note we get from Sarah in this, it it tickles me. Yeah, she seems more like an Allison-type mother in the little glimpse we get of Sarah here. A little bit too much of a, a hovering parent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Than, than kind of how I thought of Sarah in the past. But it was nice to hear a little bit from Sarah in this episode and kind of get a sense of what she's been up to. And, and phrasing it that she was... Trying to make it work with Cal again. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what all has been happening over the past eight years? Whatever it is, Kira seems to be kind of over it. <laughs> so I, I just had a couple of little stray things. It struck me that there were like two superhero references in this in these couple of episodes. There was one quote where it was Vivi kind of looking through the lab at Grit, and she she references some glowing liquid that looked like it would turn her into an angst-ridden superhero. And then later on, Cosima says to Delphine that origin story is a phrase normally used about superheroes. And it did make me wonder if it was if they were put in there because Tatiana Maslany is set to play She-Hulk next? I don't know. It might have <laughs> just been a coincidence. I mean, I don't think she was when this was recorded so i didn't think so either but it just felt a little uncanny ha huh, uncanny <laughs> x-men reference uh -huh. um <laughs> part of me though is sort of like these are comments from characters in the story right and i mean let's let's think about the past what eight or so years since Orphan Black last came out, like, how many superhero movies have come out For sure. in the past eight years? They've saturated the culture, is basically where I'm going with this. It's true. You make a fair point. And I think at least some of the writers of this series have comics background, I believe. Another thing that stuck out to me while I was listening is how Tatiana Maslany pronounces the word dilapidated. Because she says dilapidated with more of like a T sound mm -hmm. on that second D rather than a, a D sound, which is how I would say it. And when I first listened to it, I thought like, oh, that's that's interesting that she said it that way. But then I was 
you can make fun of me if you want, if you want, Chris. I was rewatching the charity read that the Orphan Black actors did like last year, early on in the pandemic, because I enjoy watching Tata Maslany and Evelyn Brochu make sexy eyes at each other <laughs> over Zoom. And <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> and Graham. Also, he had to say he was reading the script and he also had to say dilapidated and he also pronounced it dilapidated. So it makes me wonder if that's a Canadian pronunciation of that word, just generally. Huh. I found it interesting that both of them said it with more of a T sound rather than a D sound. And that's probably interesting only to me. And I accept that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I also noticed it when I was listening to this, but I didn't think much of it because, you know, sometimes... Sometimes people mispronounce words, not that this is necessarily a mispronunciation, but you know what I'm saying. And that's kind of what I thought at first, too. Maybe she mispronounced it, but now I'm wondering if that's just like the Canadian pronunciation of that word. Canadian listeners, please let us know. Please let us know. So that so that Stephanie can rest easy. <laughs> I know. I stay up at nights wondering. <laughs> I would believe it if, if you did. If you have any thoughts about this podcast or others that you would like to send to us, you can do that in a number of ways. You can email us at feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at TIE Podcast. We are also on Tumblr at Tatiana is Everyone Podcast. Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. To listen to our other podcasts about Lost Girl and Killjoys, visit our website, askgenretv.com. In this episode, the dilapidated safety shower was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thank you so much for listening. I tell you what, this is an aside, Chris, because I was rewatching the first episode of Orphan Blacker. Maybe so. The end of the second. Whenever uh, Sarah is is pulling out like the blood samples from the briefcase that Katya had, I was like, "Hang on, that looks just like that. Just looks like an ACD tube, or no, that's an orange top. That doesn't even have any preservative. In it. How stable are these samples going to be anyway?" <laughs> uh, it's like watching literally anything with an airplane with my dad. <laughs> He'd be like, that's not whatever they said it was. And then he'd tell me what it was and why they would never fly that in this situation. It's just a whole thing. (laughs) Too much knowledge ruins television. I know. I know. I know. (laughs) 